0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books.
1: This episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible, the world's leading provider of digital audiobooks. Over at audible.com, there are hundreds of thousands of titles to choose from in a variety of genres, and you can play them on just about any digital listening device in your possession. Whether it's an iPhone, a Kindle, an Android, etc. And here's the deal, everybody. Right now, for listeners of this program, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 14-day trial. You like Chuck Palahniuk? Go get Lullaby, or Survivor, or Invisible Monsters, or Fight Club. Or, if you're into Easton Ellis, go get The Rules of Attraction, or American Psycho, or Glamorama. Any one of these titles can be yours free of charge. And if you do this, if you go get the freebie, it helps the program. I get a little kickback. It's a nice thing to do. To download your free audiobook, just go to audibletrial.com slash other people. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. This is an amazing deal. It's available right now. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get them. Oh, my God.
2: You are not alone
1: Just one person at just one time. Right. right. Okay, everybody. Here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is the program. This is me talking into a microphone. I am now inside your brain. It's good to be here. Thank you for tuning in. I appreciate it. My guest today is Ben Tanzer. He's the author of several books, including 99 Problems, You Can Make Him Like You, and My Father's House. Uh, You can also find him online at This Blog Will Change Your Life which is the epicenter of his faux media empire. Uh, ben lives in Chicago. He's got a lot to say. He and I are going to be engaging in conversation in just a moment. But before I launch into that, I thought I would reflect a little bit more on my trip to Colorado uh, from last week. As uh, as many of you know, I went to Crested Butte to visit with some old friends, flew out there for the weekend, and uh, rather than repeat myself and talk about the reason for the trip and all of that, I instead want to focus on one particular aspect of the trip and uh by that i mean it strikes me as interesting uh that when you get together with old friends and and particularly old friends you know from like high school and college you inevitably fall into a storytelling mode and uh, moreover uh, you can kind of sit around with the same people year after year and tell the exact same stories and enjoy it every single time it's like the perpetuation of myth and it reminds me, you know, how much we rely on our stories from the past to sustain us and give our lives a certain architecture. And uh, and then the other thing that kind of struck me when I was there, uh, you know, the other aspect of it has to do with my age. And what I found on this particular trip and uh, with this particular reunion is that I'm getting old or at least older, you know, um, my, all my friends and I were old because back in the day, you know, we would get together and things would get a little messy. We would drink too much. We would wake up dehydrated, but happy. And uh, this time around, we were like moisturizing and drinking plenty of water and taking preemptive Advil. And uh, I think the fact, you know, the basic fact is that I just can't tolerate uh, hangovers at all anymore. And I certainly can't tolerate them the way that I used to. Uh, not only have I gotten a little bit smarter, but I just don't have it physically anymore. I hate to say it, but it's true. So, uh, you know, what was funny about this is that my old friends and I, instead of actually engaging in, uh, in hijinks, we instead sat around and told, you know, told old stories from our youth, you know, about back when we used to engage in hijinks. And, uh, you know, a lot of this stuff to be frank comes from our misspent youth. It isn't entirely advisable, but, uh, you know, these are the years in in early college when all bets were off and anything went and it was the height Uh, of our indiscretion and our hedonism and and certainly it was the height of mine so uh you know for example i told the story of uh, going to a taping of the price is right when i was 19 years old uh, and on spring break and heavily under the influence and uh, i had very long hair back then if you can believe that just try to picture that Uh, i looked uh, i looked terrible with long hair just uh, absolutely awful and uh you know just as a side note i think that maybe maybe two percent of the male population can actually wear uh long hair and look good doing it. And uh I am certainly not in that two percent. But, you know, back then I didn't care. I was kind of a hippie and I thought it would be funny to go to the prices right while in an altered state. And uh these were the days of Bob Barker and Rod Roddy. Uh it was it was completely old school. It was the original gangsters. So my friends and I, there were about you know five of us total, we did that And uh, it was really, it was a lot of fun, but you know, it might be the case where it was more fun uh, or or where it is more fun in retrospect than it was when it actually happened because we had to get there. I remember at like six in the morning or some God awful hour. It was right around sunrise and we hadn't slept hardly a wink the night before. And then we had to wait in line with a bunch of senior citizens for about five hours. And uh, we, we were a bit out of touch with reality. So that was an interesting process, just chatting with senior citizens in that particular state of mind. And what's funny about it, uh, about the whole thing is, is how genuinely bitter we were about not getting selected as contestants because, you know, on these shows, they screen everybody who, who's standing there in line. You know, you, you talk to these producers and they have their clipboards and they ask you questions. And, uh, to be honest with you, I don't remember the exact, uh, content of those exchanges but I do remember being outraged that none of us qualified for national television exposure, that we didn't get to compete. I was infuriated by that, and, uh, and I felt that we had been robbed. So uh, that was one story. And and yes, like uh, the show wound up airing, I want to say, two or three weeks later, and we taped it. And it was a big thrill for my uh, grandmother, uh, rest her soul, who was uh, deeply in love with Bob Barker or had a big crush on him. And was a regular viewer, so to see me in the crowd, which you could you could see me on this episode, uh, it was a big thrill for her. So that was one story, and then there were there were obviously many more. Uh, it was a particularly good exchange. It was a it was a fun uh, like storytelling moment, and I, I did actually hear some new ones, which is probably why it was so fun, like the stuff I hadn't uh, heard before. And uh, I guess like you know we were all kind of comparing our craziest stories. Uh, or at the very least, our most memorable, chemically enhanced experiences from our wayward youth or youths. And uh, so one friend, I'll give you an example. My friend, she's a female. Uh, I won't name her on the air uh, to protect the innocent. But she, she's, you know, she told me this story about being in Memphis uh, at an Almond Brothers concert years and years ago. And uh, you know, she's in college and she has decided to have a psychedelic concert experience at this Almond Brothers show. So she eats uh, some mushrooms. And uh, she's there uh, with her boyfriend and his brother. But, uh, you know, the relationship is not exactly long for this world. And so uh, she starts to feel a little weird, uh, both about, you know, the world itself and her boyfriend. And uh, then the concert starts and she winds up getting separated from uh, both he and his brother. And and she walks down uh, to the front row somehow. She makes her way down there. Uh, I don't exactly know how it happened, uh, but, you know, she's a very pretty girl. Nobody stopped her, you know, just kind of, I kind of feel like that happens maybe with pretty, you know, pretty people, uh, pretty women in particular, they can just kind of go places and nobody stops them. So, uh, and what I forgot to mention is that it was incredibly hot in Memphis at the time. It was summer and I I believe it was some sort of outdoor festival. Like I think it was maybe the Beale Street Festival, if that exists. And uh, it was kind of a disastrous event because uh, they ran out of water and uh, people were dehydrated and desperately in need of water. Uh, so much so that, that you know, they were opening fire hydrants and stuff like that. It was like it was bad. They ran out of bottled water. So uh, my friend, in addition to being uh, on mushrooms, was also overheated and dehydrated. And she was in the front row of this Almond Brothers concert by herself. And uh, the band is playing. And, uh, you know, she's she's tripping and she becomes convinced that Dickie Betts, the guitar player for the Allman Brothers, is homicidal and wants to murder her. So uh, that's a very intense experience. And Dickie Betts does have sort of a homicidal look. You know, I think all, pretty much all the Allman Brothers, <laughs> if you, you know, if, if you were to show me a mugshot uh, and tell me that they had committed homicide, I wouldn't be entirely surprised based on, you know, the aesthetics alone. So, you know, very intense. She feels like Dickie Betts is looking directly at her and she doesn't know exactly what to do. And the dehydration is a factor. And, uh, she eventually gets to the point where she's unable to continue standing. And she basically kind of like, you know, falls into a fog. She feels a little faint. Uh, she's taken too many mushrooms. She needs some water. And so she winds up sitting down and this nice, uh, Southern couple, you know, the way she described them was kind of like young and preppy. Uh, was kind enough to take care of her they were like, you know, like putting cold compresses on the back of her neck and uh, giving her some fluids and kind of talking her down trying to, to give her some sort of grounding in reality and so uh you know as the show wears on she remains in this state and uh you know makes a you know gradual improvement you know like a slow but steady improvement and uh you know but but, but then as she started you know to slowly reemerge from this psychedelic fog uh you know as she's becoming more verbal and less afraid of dickie betts uh you know she started to be able to connect a little bit with her surroundings and she was talking a little bit with this couple as she sat there on the ground uh but then uh something happened which uh kind of threw everything into question and caused her to once again be you know become submerged in the fog so, as she was sitting there, uh, she said, she she sort of looked across the way to the side stage and saw a guy in a wheelchair. And he was a Vietnam War veteran. And he was wearing some sort of clothing, I guess, that indicated this. And he was with other vets at the show. And uh, this particular gentleman did not have any legs. Uh, he must have lost them in the war. And he was also uh, extremely intoxicated and, and very well could have been on mushrooms himself. So my friend is sitting there dealing with uh, a mushroom induced fog and all of a sudden she looks across the way and sees this legless Vietnam veteran approaching her rapidly in his wheelchair. And he wheels over and before she can react, he he basically lifts himself up out of his chair with his arms and dumps himself into her lap to the, you know, so she's basically now holding this guy, this legless war veteran with like long hair And uh, he's very, very wasted. And she said that he was also extremely sweaty. And uh, she's kind of looking down at him. (laughs) And he looks up at her and he tells her that she is his angel. And that uh, she was going to save him and that he had been waiting for her. And so you can imagine uh, that my friend uh, was completely shocked by this exchange and didn't quite know how to respond. And uh, it took a few seconds before the nice couple, uh, you know, seated next to her was able to, uh, respond and extract the Vietnam war veteran from her lap and put him back in his wheelchair. So, uh, anyway, long story short, she did make it through the show. Uh, you know, she came back, uh, around and, uh, even enjoyed, I think the last few songs from the show. Uh, but what's funny is that, you know, after the show, uh, she winds up, you know, reuniting with her boyfriend and her boyfriend's brother. And, you know, they were, uh, they had no idea what she had been through. They they basically were, you know, talking about the concert like it was the greatest thing ever. And uh, asking her if she had an, a similarly good experience and if she had enjoyed it. So, anyhow, uh, I found that one, <clears throat> that story particularly impressive. Uh, both for its cast of characters and its visual splendor. And its conflict, most of which was internal. But not all. And, uh, I do, you know, I should also say, I am glad that my friend made it through, uh, and that we were able, uh, you know, to laugh about it after all these years.
0: Hey everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called truth is the arrow mercy is the bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long awaited craft book by Steve Almond
1: So there you have it, folks. Uh, Why don't we now turn to Ben Tanzer, who uh, is a gifted storyteller in his own right, and perhaps he can share with us a few entertaining narratives of his own. Okay. And, And between Chicago and New York, what's the difference? I mean, do you find it just a much more livable city or...
2: I don't know, you know, we didn't live there as kids, and we didn't have any money when we were there, and it was a different New York, it was less sort of Disney-fied than it is now, like it was still sort of scary to walk through Times Square at night when we were there, you know, though we did, um, I mean, it probably is more livable, people, it's still so cliche, I mean, and I know you're from the Midwest, I mean, people are just really are friendlier, you know, there's no doubt, Yeah. and happy to give you directions, I mean, all the really dopey stuff you hear is completely accurate.
1: No, that's, um, the but thing it does about, feel, that's the thing about Chicago is that it's like, you know, as far as big cities go, uh, I mean, it, does, it has the reputation of, of having the nicest people. And, like, I don't think that's unfounded, you know?
2: No, it's weird. And I think people are, and I guess I've become one of them, people are, you know, they seem really happy to be here. Like, they moved from other small towns in the Midwest or, you know, they grew up in the suburbs out here that I don't know very well. And it almost feels like they feel like it's a gift. Like, when you say to them, man, I wish I lived near the beach, which I do all the time. They'll say, You do live near a great beach. You know, there's a beach right there, like Michigan. I say, No, I guess I was thinking, you know, like LA. I mean, it's really funny. I've met several people, people I'm friends with, they look at me aghast. Like, What else could you ask for, dude? I'm like, I don't know. Just the Pacific Ocean, I guess. Somewhere I could maybe go surf. You know, something. It's just, it's hilarious. They're so, that's the other thing. People here, in some ways, even more than New York, they really feel like they own this town. It's their town. They've earned it. Like in New York, you know, all weekend long. People zip out to the Hamptons and other places to get away. Nobody ever wants to get away from Chicago. They're like, "Why would you go away?" It's kind of like when people go to college in California. They're like, "Why would you go to college anywhere but Santa Cruz or Santa Barbara?" <laughs> and you look at them and you go, "I don't, I don't know why you would." You know, that's what people here are like about Chicago. Why would you get away for the weekend when there's all this stuff here? And I think I don't know why. I'm totally sorry I brought it up. Well, Didn't bring it
1: up. <laughs> well, so tell me, like you, you mentioned sports fandom, which uh, brings up questions in my mind because I'm a sports fan too, and like I think. Uh, more writers than people sometimes think are into sports, you know there's a lot of writers who want nothing to do with sports, and you know that's how they got into books or whatever it was, but like I love right right I love sports, and I'm just curious like how you how you became a sports fan like what's the genesis of it?
2: It's a good question, you know, because uh my parents were not into sports I mean at all, and my dad actually grew up in a building like across the street from Yankee Stadium, and they could sit up on their roof and watch games in the Bronx a million years ago. But they were really not into sports, totally aghast. Um, I don't know. I mean, where I grew up is real sports-hungry. So it's a small town where sports are a big deal, both participating and watching them. Um, My mom's father, which is kind of interesting given his his pursuits, work-wise and otherwise, was really into sports and took us to, he lived in Baltimore and he took us to Orioles games when we were really young and talked about, you know, the need to have a cold beer and watch baseball. That was a big deal to him. And his second wife had grown up in a small town in Alabama and she was like a rabid sports fan. And from the time I was like my kid's age, she was like, I don't care what you do in life though. She did, but you will work for the university of Alabama football team. So that part of the family was rabid. And I think, you know, that overwhelmed my parents. And I think also, I always said this to my mom, like, I think in my family, if you wanted to rebel, then you had to be, you had to do popular things. You couldn't rebel in the normal ways because my parents were totally out of the mainstream. So you had to get into sports and you had to drink beer and, you know, I had to do all these things to sort of rebel that other people just did normally. I think I just sort of adapted them,
1: you know. Yeah, yeah. No, but I right think now. I think it's got to happen when you're a kid. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I guess people can come to it late in life, but like part of it seems geographic and familial and cultural. And then a lot of it just feels like it has to do with when you're a child because I can't attach to a sports team at this age i can't it can't happen anew right you know what I'm saying like I can't move to a new city and suddenly be like a Dodgers fan, even though I live in l a and like you know maybe if they were in the World Series, I would like root for them, but like not with like the same uh you know passion that I root for the Packers, which was the team that I cheered for when I was a kid growing up in Wisconsin, and it's just like you know to this day like i don't think i've missed a game i can't remember the last time i've missed a game you know it's it's ridiculous uh, but it's a good time for you to be a fan yeah no it's been great you know i'm i'm, I'm like forever pessimistic though like i oh no matter what like even lo- like wins feel like losses at this point it's it's kind of ridiculous but um i don't know i'm just i'm it, it's sort of uh, curious to me and uh i you know it, i don't know I, I look at it and i'm like you know really what I'm cheering for is the uniform because the players change out right. I have no real allegiance. <laughs> to them. you know so you're just you're cheering for colors it's a strange thing
2: it's the feeling well you know and it's funny because I've always been a very rabid sort of Yankees fan that was the first team I sort of hooked on to and they had big personalities and Billy Martin you know who's the coach he died in my hometown in a drunken driving accident right outside my hometown and One of my girlfriend's moms was at the hospital when they brought him in. I always had these different attachments to the Yankees. And when I first moved here, I was so self-conscious about it that I didn't talk about the Yankees probably for like five or ten years. And then, you know, I slowly came out of my shell over the last five or six years. It seemed really silly as an adult to be that self-conscious. I know one of my friends at work is always like, so now you're looking for me, they got great. I'm like, no, now I'm less embarrassed to live here and tell you I'm a fan because, you know, they're so hated. And that's actually not. I know some people like the Yankees just because other people hate them. I've never been into that. But I was always embarrassed to be a fan. And my younger son hates the Yankees. So it's not clear based on what he walks around now saying, "We hate the Yankees. We hate the Yankees.
1: Well, see, that's the thing though. You, you can't like as much as you like you know. You mentioned that your was it your aunt said that you had to cheer for the University of Alabama. Is that right? My great, my grandmother. Yeah, she was a hardcore fan. Okay, so like if you have a son and he's being raised in Chicago and you're a Yankees fan, you can't then transfer Yankees fandom to him. He's going to cheer for the the White Sox or the Cubs, right?
2: Uh, absolutely, dude. You're right on. And, of course, Obama is a Sox fan. And as young as my kids are, they're like hardcore Obama devotees. So in their mind, they hear Obama talking about the White Sox, and it's like, that's it. I mean, he's more important than I am in that regard. And so you know, he likes to make fun of Cubs fans, which I think my older son feels a little on the fence about because we are sort of Northsiders. So my older son feels like he's supposed to root for the Cubs. And the first game he ever sat through nine innings was a Cubs game. But, yeah, it's pretty funny. Yeah, you can't get them to root for New York anything. It's hilarious. Nothing. Not the Knicks, not the Giants. And I can't get them to root for minor league teams. So, yeah, that's been a disaster. Of course, I didn't have that growing up. My parents didn't care at all. So I got to make that up as I went along. They are not bending to my will, and that's pretty fascinating.
1: Well, have you now, so have you ever written about sports to try to bring it back into writing?
2: Yeah, no, you know, very little. The one thing I've written about at any length is um, my sort of compulsion around running and the intersection of running and rating, and actually uh, a publisher asked me to do that. It never would have occurred to me that that would be interesting or cool, though those are two of my primary, you know, compulsions. And so I have written extensively about running, but, you know, I'm not, I was almost a competitive runner once. And now I'm really just a you know fucking lame <laughs> older guy who still runs a lot, but uh, that's the main area I write about. You know, I wrote a long nonfiction piece that got published a long time ago about how much I hated Little League. But then years later, I got sort of forced onto my law firm softball team, and I got a huge hit in a game, and it was so triumphant. I thought I guess I could deal with Little League if I could go back. <laughs> like I had really not enjoyed it. You know, it was a little too rah rah. It was very intense never enjoyed the dads who coached, you know, I wasn't that good. If I wasn't good at something, you know, some people enjoy something when they're bad at it. I'm not good at that. So I don't mind being bad at things, but then I can't really bring myself to pretend I'm into it, which is tough when you're married, you know. But, uh, yeah, I did write about that. But mainly I've written about running, and I've built it into some of the books I've written. You know, I always, not always, but I have used that as one of the sort of coping mechanisms and obsessions of some of my characters. I mean, it's something I really connect with.
1: Well, yeah, no, you know, you're not the only one. Like, I talked, I remember talking to Blake Butler on a previous episode of the show, and like, you know, he's a runner and has to run every day, and like, I'm, in you know, I don't run because uh, my back won't allow it, but I, I exercise pretty much every day. I'm one of those people, and not all riders are, but I think it's fairly common. Um, it's a fairly common thing for riders. as like a mood regulator, and uh, I don't know what you know. You, you mentioned the word compulsion, but I guess like certain people are just wired to have to move and. The the thing for me is that if I don't break a sweat during the day, no matter how hard I work, otherwise I will have trouble sleeping that night. Like I have to kind of oh, wear, yeah, I have to kind of wear myself out. Does that register?
2: Oh, dude, absolutely. It's funny because I've met Blake. I don't know him very well. I didn't know he was a runner though. So that was interesting because you know I also battled insomnia for years and years and years. So now I'm like doubly fascinated to read nothing. You know, which I really enjoy hearing you guys talk about. That I got really pumped. But, uh, yeah, no, running, I don't think I realized that running did all that until more recent years. I mean, when I was maybe 12 years old, I just sort of fixated on, I need to join the track team. Like, I had never really run. I mean, I had competed a bit, like, in sprints in elementary school, and, yeah, you know, I would run with my dad a couple of times, and he was only partially into it, but somehow I fixated that the track team was going to provide something. I don't know what it was. And I can tell you, the first day, they sent us out on, like, a five-mile run, and I was sort of drawn to all the rock stars, which is always my thing. And so I tried to run with the real badass guys. And, <laughs> you know, it was really, and I didn't really keep up with them. And I was wearing my canvas night tennis shoes. I didn't have running shoes yet. And the very, very, very cool Myler guy was like, what the hell is that guy's problem? What, what are those shoes? Like, he was complaining about me the whole run. You know, why are his shoes slapping on the ground? He's making so much noise. But, you know, I kept up with them pretty easily. And when I finished that run, I mean, I don't think I consciously said, wow, this is my thing now. But, you know, that's 30, easily 30 years ago, and I easily still try to run, you know, every day since that day. So a real switch, you know, something got flipped for me, and it was transformative, you know. And I don't think it was till several years later, though, that I realized it was a true outlet. It wasn't just a racing thing. Because when I first started, I was, you know, like hyper-competitive. And later it just became, uh, I got to get out of the house. And I would go run like 10 miles in the middle of the night, you know, which in Binghamton is cool because it's really dark, and, um, you know, I would just go out at midnight. And one night I went out. first time I did it, I was probably 15. I went out for a 10-mile run. And I came in at, like, 11 o'clock. And my parents were sitting on the couch. And they were talking, which is what they were always doing. And my mom said, were you out of the house? And I said, yeah, I've been running for, like, an hour. And my dad's like, cool. And then they got back to their conversation. And I thought, all right, I'm going to start. I'm going to keep doing this. And I still do, you know. But, yeah, you're right. It does something. I never realized how many things it sort of influenced. And I also never really realized how little I can control it. There's not really a choice, which is weird.
1: Well, so when do you do it? You do it at night?
2: So, you know, it changes up. I like to do it at night, you know, with the kids and their sleep, which is now funkier than when they were younger. <laughs> it's a little harder to get at night. I mean, my fantasy would be, you know, nine thirty, ten o'clock every night. That's my favorite time. Um, but a lot of the time, I switched when my older son started getting older. A lot of times now I go out first thing of the day, you know, five thirty, six o'clock. I've done that for years. And more recently, with my work schedule changing a little bit, I'll drop the kids off at school and I'll run around, you know, 8:30 before work starts, which I find like a very weird time to run because it's actually light out. <laughs> it's sort of like writing. I figure out when I'm going to do it, and then I just do everything possible not to lose the opportunity. So Even now it's any time I can get out.
1: Even when it's freezing, like you, you can you, you'll just bundle up and go out there and run in like sub-zero temperatures.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, I run absolutely outdoors year-round, and I always, which is very dorky me, the coldest day, when they say it's the coldest day of the year, I absolutely obligate myself to go out. So the last couple of winters I've gotten out at least twice on 40 Below, and that's just sort of shocking. I mean, I probably need to stop doing that at some point, but that's (laughs) sort of more of a thrill-seeking thing. I don't really understand that. I just sort of go with it, that it seems like I have an obligation to do it. Like, if I can go out there, I can do anything. So that's worked out pretty well. But yeah, no, year-round, doesn't matter how hot it is, how hard it's raining, doesn't matter if it's snowing. I'll go out when thunder, though that gets my older son very nervous and my wife to a lesser extent.
1: <laughs> so wait, what happens if you miss a day? Do you get all grumpy?
2: No, you know, it's funny. I was thinking about that the other day. I was probably thinking about it because I knew we were going to be talking. and somehow that popped in my head. But, you know, I have noticed now with the writing in particular, and I think me being a little more mellow with age, so I'm not clear about that, it's not quite as bad as it used to be that writing fills some of that gap. And so in some ways I'm also less compulsive about the running because I'm way more compulsive about the writing. So I think like one thing is slightly replaced the other. I and mean, I'll still say a perfect day is to get up and go for an hour run and then write, you know, for 30 minutes or an hour before everyone gets up, think get on with the day. I mean, that would be my goal every single day. It doesn't happen. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think the running, I've gotten a little better because I have writing. You know, and I you know, I get grumpier if I don't write, for sure. That's a, that's a shift for the last four or five years.
1: And so you're an attorney, and then you're a writer, is that correct?
2: <laughs> no, sorry. My first job out of college was in this huge law firm, and that actually convinced me that law would be a terrible mistake. So by training and by career now for the last 15, 16, well, I guess longer, wow, 18 years, I've been working in the social work and nonprofit fields. So I'm a more of a, non, I'm a nonprofit guy, for sure and have shifted into communications work the last three or four years.
1: Okay, but it sounds like you have some flexibility of schedule, so you're able to kind of build writing in into your day.
2: Yeah, so what happened was about a year ago, you know, we had this tremendous snowstorm, and my boss had been growing increasingly flexible about people's schedules, and that's when I realized how rigid I was. Like, he was offering to let me be more flexible, and I couldn't quite accept it. And then we had that huge snowstorm last February, right before AWP, and I was stuck home for several days with the kids, I felt like I had to work and, you know, it worked out so well, like them getting out of the house and me getting work done that now on Tuesdays and Thursdays, like today, I basically work in two or three shifts during the day. It's like tonight at some point I'll put in two or three hours, you know, like around 10 to 1. But on these days I have all sorts of flexibility to run and write because I'm working out of the house and no one's here. So I'll do both and I'll still get all my hours in, but it's like an 18-hour day.
1: Wow. So when you talk when you talk about writing, like, and, and you talk about the the compulsive nature of it, like, how regimented are you? Like, do you have like a set schedule, or is it just like uh, different from day to day? But you get it done somehow.
2: It's different day to day, and I get it done. You know, the main focus I decided on early on was that I would never be precious about it. That I would write anywhere, any way possible. Whether I was on a train, you know, I do a lot of traveling for work too. So if I was on a train or a plane or on a bus or sitting in a room somewhere. But the main goal was to try to write a minimum of 30 minutes, seven days a week. And so I try to plan that loosely, but I will grab any opportunity. Now, I have stopped shaving at times when my wife said, hey, we're going to run out of the house for 45 minutes. And I'll think, oh, my God, there's the window today. I have it. And then I'll just, like, walk out of the bathroom, sit down, and fire up the computer and just go. So it's very much catch as catch can, but it is very compulsive, you know. And so I try to plot it. Or I always call it. I try to slot it, but I will grab any little window. Like my mom was using last week, and she's like, hey, maybe I'll take the kids over to the hotel room. And I said, how long? And she said, what do you need? how long? I said, well, if you're taking them to the room for 10 minutes, then I can't write. But if you disappear for an hour, I'm going to go run them and write. So, you know, I'm constantly trying to figure that stuff out.
1: Wow, and you can do that. You can, like, write for, like, 30 minutes, seven days a week on, like, trains and public transportation and crank out books.
2: I guess, yeah, that sounds really pretentious. Not you saying it, me thinking it. Um, yeah, I can. The one thing I don't do is I won't. I've heard other people say this. I'm amazed by it. I won't sit here and write while the kids are running around the living room. So I don't need silence anywhere. But I don't. I won't work. You know, if the kids are in the house, that's yeah. the main thing. And I won't work for like someone told me the other day. You know, they'll put in like a series of ten or fifteen minute slots during the day. I don't want to. I don't really prefer to work like that unless I'm trying to finish something. It's mainly give me 30 minutes of mostly uninterrupted time per day, and that's cool. And, yeah, that's allowed me to crank out a lot of stuff over the last, particularly the last several years.
1: Yeah, I mean, no, I'm like, I'm a, I'm working on a book right now, and I'm like, I have so many different things going on that it's been hard to get through it. But I I made a decision that I was going to be uh, militant about getting that done first every day. So I've been getting up at like five in the morning and uh, and working for the first chunk of the day, or you know, before nine a.m. kind of thing. And
2: uh, I think it's I think that's the primary. I would think with you, with all the various things you got going on at TMB, you don't have a choice. I mean, there's, there's you could no probably way. be distracted all day long.
1: No, yeah, but I'm listening to you talk, and it's kind of like humbling me because it's like I feel like I need to have like a quiet room with no distractions. You know what I'm saying? Like it's got to. I, I love the silence, but the problem is that you know if I sit at my computer. Um, you know, the emails are coming through and the phone is ringing and the internet is right. You know, I don't know what it is, but there's something about getting up super early and having it be quiet. That works for me.
2: Yeah, you know, the morning is awesome. I'm shocked. I mean, I, you know, I always had insomnia and for a lot of years, you know, I drink. <laughs> I always say, I always sound like I'm bragging. I try not to say it like that, but you know, for a lot of years I drink a lot and did a lot of drugs. And so, the morning really didn't exist, and I didn't use it as the morning, even when I worked full-time. You know, it was just like, get out of bed, go to work. And I've always been super you know, work-focused and things like that, but I never had like mornings. It never existed until I had kids. And so it's been sort of fascinating how awesome the morning is. I never had any sense of it for the last <laughs> six, seven, eight years. And I'm really – it's an awesome time of day. I mean, I wish I had more, even more flexibility. Like today, I was really worried about – sort of work starting back up because I mean I, I have a full time thing and it's very intensive It's a lot of it's really enjoyable and I actually made myself get up like I would normally do to write just to start working like an hour before the kids woke up because so I wanted to turn on that part of my brain I had a big call at 10 o'clock and I have a bunch of stuff to send out today and I thought I'm actually going to do work work at 6am which I never ever ever do and that was good I mean the writing has actually helped me you know, even get more focused on work. And that way, that's a positive today.
1: Yeah. Yeah. When you said you were, you were uh, drinking a lot and doing drugs, were you like sober or are you just saying that you were just younger and more careful?
2: Oh, no, just younger, but it was just a long time and there was a lot of binging involved and it was sort of a primary focus of the day. So, <laughs> um, and then I've heard some the other people you've spoken to and I've thought to myself, okay, I didn't, that'll qualify for that bucket. Um, yeah, I think just the sort of behavior, the sort of binge qualities of it, even the regimentation and the spotting elements of it are all very similar for me. You know, I think I tried drinking because everyone I knew was a drinker and, you know, we always hung out with older kids because I was a varsity athlete. And I think not unlike, I've only realized this more the last couple of years, but not unlike, you know, first, we're well, actually even going further back, first reading, I fixated on reading and I'm still a voracious reader, then running and I think alcohol snuck in there and then drugs. I think I just tried it. And it was great. I mean, the experience was great. And it's not to sort of celebrate it because the downsides are way more extensive, but you know, probably for 10, 15, 20 years, you know, from 13 to 30 or 15 to 30 or whatever that age range is, it was something I really sort of plotted out and didn't have a good, you know, ability to, to manage. So it wasn't every day. I never woke up craving it, but it was always like, uh, when are we going to do that next? How am I going to fit that in? What's that going to look like?
1: Right. You know, are we
2: going to try this? Are we going to try that? And this is when I live in California, you know, right out of college. I mean, we were just trying everything to get our hands on. And,
1: where, where were you, you know, in California?
2: So we moved, a uh, roommate of mine and I moved to San Francisco about a month after graduation okay. and um, lived in, first in Oakland, O-Town, as my cousins call it, O-Town for about six months and then lived in San Francisco for about um, 18 months or whatever that was then before I moved to New York City.
1: Yeah. Well, no, it's interesting you say all this because like, I had a fairly concentrated window um, uh, you know, of uh, partying or whatever it is, heavy drinking and drug use. And it was like, just when I was in college until I was kind of in my like early twenties. Um, and then I, I just stopped for, or I phased it out for whatever reason. But, uh, when I, when you talk about running and exercise and I think about why like that's such a component of my life now and, and, you know, totally related to my creative life, even, uh, it's, it's might sound sort of like, um, Counterintuitive at the outset, but like I think a lot of it is just an outgrowth of doing, uh, of or, or of those kinds of consumptions. You know, it's like almost like hangover management when I was in college. Like that's where I first learned it. I was like, oh, okay, so I have a hangover, but if I go for a hike or I go running up in the hills, because I, I lived in Colorado, uh, I feel better. Do you know what I'm saying? You sweat it out, and like then all of a sudden you're like, wow. And if I if I don't have a hangover and I do that, I feel even better. You know.
2: Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I would actually say I've probably done that, but that's probably not even how it works for me. It's much more about a series of sort of ultimately intersecting coping mechanisms, helping me melancholy. It never occurred to me to wake up and go run because you'd sweat it out. And many times I've run, gone running while I was drinking or taking drugs because that's the thing I felt like doing at that moment. Oh, really? You know, oh yeah, I've caught some flack for that. That's a long time ago, but one of the first times we dropped acid, I, Later that night, I was like, oh, my God, I've got to go for a run. I was so excited, and I've always loved running so much, and the experience was so positive. I you know, hope my kids don't hear this So later. It was so positive. I thought, i got to cap this day with a long run. And one of my friends was like, dude, you know, it was like 2 o'clock in the morning. He's like, you can't go out under these conditions. And I said, I have to go out under these conditions. And later, it seemed sort of stupid. But at the time, it really seemed like a brilliant thing. And actually, it was a great, great feeling, you know. Um, so, yeah, I don't. I don't think I was ever able to say this will help this or this will help that. I think it was more like this is what I want right now and I think it's going to benefit me in some way. And then you know, I think as I got older, the drinking and the drugs become something that's less manageable because then you want to write and do other things. And, you know, you can't really – it sounds so stupid and cliche – you can't really do other things. And so all of a sudden I thought, am I really going to give up every night or a whole Saturday? And I thought, no, I'm not willing to do that anymore. There's too many other important things to do. So it was very easy to cut back.
1: Yeah, very no, easy. That's how I felt, too. I just I, The thing about it was, like, I loved doing that stuff, and I had fun with it, but it was like I, I couldn't handle the – I couldn't uh, rationalize the hangovers. I hate a hangover, right. and I hate, like, waking up and being like, okay, well, there goes a the day. Like, I just can't uh, – I can't do it.
2: Drives yeah, I think when you – for me, yeah, when you combine that with sort of the bad experiences, which when you were – when I was younger, it didn't seem like a big deal. And then as I got older – I thought, wow, the bad stuff is really scary. And I think with age, especially when I started having kids, so I gave up a lot of this way before that, you know, you get scared as you get older about things. I know I have. And so then I started getting scared, like something that seemed sort of silly, you know, having a bad trip at a dead show in Oakland, which seemed at the time both really scary and somehow profound, which is so lame-sounding. Five years later, that seemed like, how could that possibly have seemed profound to you? I don't want to have any part of that. That's way too scary. What, what happened? So Dodgers believed...
1: What happened? You That's were-
2: pretty funny now. It's so cheesy, but your Deadhead fans will appreciate it. I was at a show at Oakland Coliseum, and we took a, you know a lot of mushrooms, and I was with a woman who I was a really good friends with and lived with back then, and she wandered off, and you know we'd always all sort of agreed not to let people be by themselves, and you know sort of like ride an electric Kool Aid acid test, have a good company, you know whatever, whatever. And I never thought that was a big deal that I'd be fine by myself, but within losing her, within ten minutes, I started like really freaking out. You know, like everyone looked really weird and nobody looked friendly and I just had too many thoughts going and, you know, all the sort of pleasure stuff got inverted. Everything seemed really scary. Everybody seemed really pale and skinny, which is what they look like at dead shows. And all of a sudden nobody seemed cool or inviting or attractive. I was really flipping out. And the funny part, and this is the deadhead part, I started like, you know, walking like compulsively around the arena, trying to like collect my thoughts. And then, I thought I thought I heard something through, like, an exit door behind the stage, and I cut behind this door, and there was Jerry Garcia, like, strumming his guitar, getting ready to go on for the second half, like, just standing there. It was, like, 10, 20 feet away, but he was, like, behind this curtain. Uh, All of a sudden, I was like, oh, my God, Jerry, Jerry saved my life, and I ran all the way back down to the floor, and as I got there, they started the second act, and then for the next two hours, I was, like, in total deadhead. Trippy world, so it's sort of funny. It was like the worst and best experience that I ever had, but I was really, really scared, and I was really flipping out. And I kept saying to myself, "You should go to the police or someone and ask for help." But if you do that, they're going to take you to a hospital. Like I, I was conscious enough to realize that was probably a dumb thing long term, if I could just get it together short term.
1: Yeah, no, that's okay. So you didn't completely cross the line. I have, I have a buddy who uh, at a dead show did did that. <laughs> he uh, he actually went to one of the security guards and was like you know i'm freaking out and the guy took him backstage to like the doctors or whatever and apparently he was like asking to talk to john lennon and you know it was he was yelling at police officers and all sorts of stuff but you know things can get dicey
2: yeah i was self aware enough to assume they'd have to get dicey and that was not something i wanted to deal with so i sort of willed myself to make it but again as cheesy as it is i mean jerry garcia saved me that particular time
1: (laughs) (laughs) so what about uh so what about like psychedelics i don't think i've talked about this with anybody but like you know they have um an impact i mean like creatively can you trace any of your uh the work that you do in uh, in books and literature to drug experiences i mean was there a profundity to any of them that you feel like really had an impact or do you think that that would be overstating it
2: I think it's probably overstating it, but, you know, it's an interesting dynamic as compared to some of the other writers you know, I've listened to you talk to and other ones I'm friends with. You know, I didn't write at all. I mean, I could talk more about that, but I really didn't start writing until I was 30. And so all those years of doing other things, sports and drugs and moving around the country and, you know, looking for work, I mean, I just never wrote. I didn't write a single word. And so I don't really know how it connects. One thing I would say is that, that stretch where I did the most drugs the most often is also when I was able, you know, I moved to the West coast and I got out of upstate New York and, you know, sort of separated from my parents. Not that that was a big deal. I mean, in that particular relationship, but all those things happened around the same time. So I do think that I probably could have done all of that without drugs, but I will admit, I've always thought that the drugs at the very earliest point did sort of liberate me from sort of being stuck totally in my own head and, stuck in rigid ways and stuck in sort of defining myself as an athlete and someone who was trying to pick up women, which I was obsessed with as well for a long time. So I think they coincide and I think they trickle in. I mean, now I tend to look at that stuff, not more negatively, but with an older eye, you know, that it was a coping mechanism. Sometimes it went well, sometimes it went poorly. I mean, it was funny. The first book I wrote, Lucky Man, um, all the characters take drugs because when I was a teenager and in college, everybody I knew took drugs. I now realize as a 40-year-old, not everybody does that or did that. At the time, I had no idea that I was not, that I wasn't everybody. And you know, it's funny, one of the people who reviewed the first book, Lucky Man really positively, mainly focused on how he saw the book as sort of a survey of the drug scene, small-town drug scene in the 80s and 90s. And, and I was amazed by that. Like, to him, it was a really sort of big deal to see someone write about it like I wrote about it. And to me, it was an offhand thing that was part of the larger book. And to him, it actually had a, a lot of import, a lot of import, to. And I had never thought about it like that. So, you know, clearly, I think the way I did drugs, where I did drugs, how we did them is reflective of that age. You know, I went to rave shows, earliest raves. We did that. You know, I went to dead shows. I mean, all the things people do are very cliché. But also very much of that time period, I did all of that stuff, not thinking I was doing anything particularly interesting or in a particularly interesting way. But maybe in a book, it does have some of that.
1: Well, and, and OK, so like and, and let me ask you this, like in terms of why you did them, because I think about this, too, like obviously not everybody did them. And some people are scared or, you know, they just have like a different sense of their bodies or. Um, you know, th- there are a lot of different reasons not to do drugs or whatever. But for me, I-, I look back on it and I try to, like, ask myself why I was one of the people who was so willing to experiment when I was younger. And I think part of the problem was that when I was uh, growing up, when I was, like, in elementary school and junior high, the information I was getting was was uh, false. It was like, everything's bad. Just say no. Uh, pot equals heroin. You know? And, like, it's just an, abs- an absurd uh, transfer of information. And I had no adult in my life who had any inside knowledge who was willing to sit me down and be like, look, this is what this one does. This is what that one does. These are the negative, you know, there's just no, no straight talk. And I think that uh, once you, you know, if, if you come up and we, I think we're probably in uh, close to the same generation. And if you come up that way and then like, you know, you smoke a joint and you realize that like your head didn't explode and it was kind of fun and, you know, you got the munchies or whatever, then all of a sudden, like, all bets were off. It was like, okay, these people were lying to me. This is kind of great, and I'm going to try everything and find out for myself. Is that you?
2: You know, it's funny. Yeah, I mean, no one ever talked to me about, my mom would hate this, but, you know, no one really ever talked to me about anything, drugs or sex. Or, you know, I was definitely left to my own devices in a lot of ways, and I gravitated where I gravitated, and I think for me, this is my social worker brain, you know. It was very normative behavior. Just I just did what everybody was doing, and not because I felt influenced, but they seemed to be really enjoying themselves. And I do think in the early years, especially, there was a desire. It was very self medicating, even though it was enjoyable. Very self medicating. I think even though I had a very overall great experience in high school, like I'm not someone who's ever said to you, high school was really miserable that was not remotely my experience or college. You know, I think there's just a lot of turmoil at home and I'm assuming there was a lot of self-medicated to it. I think later though, for some brief stretch, um, drugs, especially put me in touch with like a range of emotions that I had never really thought about happiness and sadness, pain and anger. Like I was pretty shut down for a long time. So I enjoyed myself and I made friends and I had some healthy relationships, but you know, I really thought the goal was to sort of suppress, you know, all emotion all the time. That was sort of semi conscious. And I must admit, you know, drugs show me that's not the case. You can be really happy and you can be really sad and those are pretty interesting emotions. I'm sure that's too what got me going as a writer, tapping into that. That is one of those positives from that time period. But I just think it's very normative behavior and I have a very binge sort of personality. It's it's very easy for me to stop anything and cut it off and also very easy to start anything. But it's not easy for me to stop or start something when I'm in the middle of it. You know, it's all very start go for me. If I'm in the middle, like if I'm on an hour run and I'm running with someone and they want to stop at 57 minutes, that gets me a little crazy. It's like this was supposed to be an hour run, dude. I was out with a friend of mine I've been friends with for years. And he's like, okay, let's stop. Let's walk the rest of the way. I took him on like the hour run I do here. And I said, I can't really walk the rest of the way. He's like, what do you mean? I go, well, we didn't hit the full hour. And he looked at me like I was crazy. And I thought, I am crazy. Like he's looking at me correctly. And I said, I need to let you get ahead of me, or I need to get ahead of you, and I'll just circle back. I got to get my full hour in. There's no need for that, but I'm trying to do better with that stuff. <laughs> it was yeah, really no. funny. He looked at me like, "Dude, what is your problem?" I thought, "I'm sorry, I can't do it that way. I can't. I'm not there."
1: Yeah, no, not I, feel, there yet. I, I kind of, I kind of understand that. Like, what well, if I go hiking with somebody and they're like really slow, and I've got, all... I mean, like, because I can, I'm in good shape. I can hike up a mountain pretty fast. I've been doing it since I was a teenager, and so. uh it, that can be frustrating and I'll find myself like, you know, going up ahead and then circling back uh, when I should probably just wait for them and just like hang out with them.
2: Yeah, it's sort of terrible. And again, you know, it's funny, even there, slowness per se, isn't it? It's like if we agreed to do something, I've got that in my head now and I slotted it and I don't want to mess with it because I need that to get through the week, which, you know, now I sound even more compulsive talking to you. It's kind of. funny. <laughs> I know how bad I am, but talking, talking out loud, it's kind of like when I wrote the essays I did on running and raining. I thought, wow, man, I'm so much more compulsive than I thought, and I actually enjoy a lot of things less than I thought I did until I read these essays, Yeah, you know, and a- I found it 30- sort of...
1: Is there any kind of health component, though? Aren't you, like, taking care of yourself? Do you think of that part of it?
2: Yes. Yeah, so well, I see that as a benefit now. I mean, I never did up until the last four or five years, but now I know it is, and so I'm glad. So, yeah, so there's a total benefit, and it's a big deal to me, and I want to stay healthy, you know, My dad died fairly young from a pretty virulent, virulent, I can never pronounce that word, a very intense form of cancer. And my mom's a cancer survivor. And, you know, I'm very, way more focused on health. I never used to think about health at all. Maybe people don't, you know, though my kids do. Um, They're a different generation. But yeah, in the last four or five years, it occurred to me that compulsions aside and all that, I, you know, people need this. I need this. And of course, I don't go to the gym anymore because there's no time to do that. And so, running has been both become a compulsion and the main thing I do to be healthy, for sure. Besides trying to eat well, so yeah. Now I'm wrapping
1: everything into it. Yeah, no, I mean that's, that's I mean. That's that's the big part of it for me. Like, I just want to be well. I need, I, and frankly, like with all the stuff that I have to do, I have to have my energy like i have to be strong otherwise i'll get tired or i'll you know i don't know i can't understand people who don't move like i i'm I like that that to me is just crazy and especially people who don't exercise at all who like look really fit and just have those jeans and have like tons of energy and just don't need it you know what i'm saying there there, there aren't that many of them but they do exist
2: uh, it's different wiring you know totally different wiring so i can live with it right it's weird for sure and I don't even, you know, I don't even focus on other people. Like, you should be healthier, though I sometimes, you know, not that I never do that. But I always think, don't you just want that? Don't you, doesn't it just excite you? But it doesn't. And I mean, certain things, you know, there's people I'm friends with on Facebook, and I make a comment about running and writing. And they're like, I get the writing, but why the hell would you ever go running? <laughs> and I always find that really funny. I mean, I get it, but I find it very
1: funny. Wow. Well, so, you know, just to dial it back a little bit, I mean, I don't want to hit the uh, the heavy stuff too hard, but you said, you know, that you lost your father <laughs> young. And, uh, your yeah, mother. well, he was young.
2: Yeah, I mean, my mom had breast cancer when I was in my early 20s, and then my dad um, got this very rare form of, you know, blood cancer in my early 40s. So I always thought I wasn't, I'm in my early 30s, so. I'm not sure how young I was, but he seemed young, like way before his time. That was always that's a, you know that's the way that feels. So sure. that's why I'm focused that they were not healthy at fairly young ages. Nothing they necessarily could have done. You know they didn't do something wrong. They weren't smokers. They never drank. They never took drugs. They actually both eat really well. You know, so but that's always on my mind now for sure.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. That sucks, man. And uh, you know, you say uh, what are you in your in your early 40s now? Yes. Okay. Do you have 43? Um, do you have a sense of uh, like where you want your literary career to go? Like, do you want? Uh, do you have it plotted out in the long term? Or are you just kind of like the next step in front of you? you that? That,
2: dude, cool question. Yeah, I'm not super strategic. I'm definitely not Mike Singletary in that way. And I don't, you know, he's always like doing tenure plans. I love that little Bears reference. And, you know,
1: Mike Singletary, linebacker for the Chicago Bears. Yeah,
2: sorry. I threw that out like
1: everyone knows him because, of course, they're supposed to. (laughs) And, you know, I like that at work. You know, one of the things I get paid for is to plot things out for people
2: and, you know, be smart about it. But, um, you know, with the waiting, I do try to visualize what I hope to do next. It's not really based on um, how well it will go or where I'd like to be. It's, it is very based, focused, though, on what I hope to do and can I do that? And then, of course, will somebody want it? And then will somebody read it? So, you know, I sort of plot it out like that. You know, what's the next thing I want to try to think about, write about? How can I get there? Will I get there? Um, I'm only sort of focused, like, book to book in that way, or now a couple of books in advance. I'm very grandiose. But um, that is how I think about it, sort of book to book. I don't plan it based on audience or who will be interested, just what would that look like? How do you get there? How will I get there? You know, what do I need to do? Um, I mean, there is a second piece of that, which is also not planful. It makes me feel like Courtney love. I mean, there are things I hope people will ask me to do and be part of, you know, will people invite me to pitch something to an anthology? Will someone like you invite me to be part of something like this? Like these are things that I really, really enjoy. And, you know, sort of the enjoyment factor and the coolness factor is sort of a big deal to me as well. More important than other things, like making money or uh, being nominated for things, though I really enjoy that stuff too. But I am very focused on what do I want to do next and what am I hoping people ask me to do and then what does that look like? So on that level, I'm planful. But I've met other people and they lay out what their big plans are and I'm like, wow, I don't know that I have, I think I have the confidence as a writer, but I'm not sure I totally believe that as a writer, say I'm like work. So I can just do whatever I want. That still seems a little hard
1: to fathom. Do you feel like you, you know? have? Do you, do you feel like what you write has the potential to have like wide appeal? Like, do you know what I'm saying? Like that's a question I've been asking yeah. myself. Like, do you feel like you have that? Like, you're like this. What I'm writing could possibly reach millions of people. Do you ever have that thought?
2: Yeah, dude, that's a great question. It's kind of like my mom asks me all the time, which is really funny. You know, she's clearly a fan, but she's also sort of objectively trying to figure out what makes something popular. You know, I have. I think I still work in, meaning who looks for my work, is a pretty small circle, though pretty intense, which I, you know, really appreciate, and there are moments, a lot of moments where I think, I think this should be, like, the book I came out in the spring I did, You Can Make Him Like You, which got a really great response, and I was thrilled about it, you know, I thought to myself, if this book had a bigger release, and that's not a knock on my publisher, who I artistically declined, a client, who I absolutely love and loved working with, but, you know, say Harper Perennial had put it out, would the intensity be just as big for more people, or do I really only have a certain kind of fan base? So I'm not sure. I think what I've been assuming is a lot like an indie band, because I can keep cranking things out and making appearances and reading and supporting other writers and sort of building all of that that something will hit at the right time. And I do believe there's like a little magic to it that you don't, can't totally control what gets popular and what doesn't. So I think so. I think you can make them like you could have been, could be, could have been bigger. I think they've all got that potential, frankly, which again, I think is also a little maybe grandiose, but yeah, I think it's possible, but I don't think we have a lot of control over that. You know, it's kind of like being a great athlete on a team that doesn't need you in their position. Like they've already got a third baseman. So, you know, you start kicking around and you hope, you hope that someone will need you in the right way. So, I don't think I've, I don't think I've found that right relationship yet, but I'm very, very, very appreciative of the people who have been interested in my work and they've all gotten nice distribution and nice responses. So, yeah, it's a tricky question. I don't think we have a lot of control over it. That is very frustrating. So, I just sort of try to set it aside and keep my head down and sort of keep putting things in front of people. You know, like a couple months ago, a guy called me, from a publishing house, and he said, would you ever consider reissuing your old books and giving them a bigger audience? And I said, have I given you the impression I wouldn't want to do that? <laughs> yeah, right.
0: <laughs>
2: you know, I'm like, Am I, do you think I'm purposely trying to be obscure? though well, sometimes I think people think that about me. Um, and he said, well, send me the books. Send me your semi old books. I want to read them, get to know them better, and get back to you. So my feeling was 20% chance he ever gets back to me. So, so far, he hasn't. You know, and so I think that's the stuff that's hard to control. Did he not like what he read, or did he put that feeler out to a bunch of people, or it's really only several weeks past when he told me he would follow up? So maybe it's just too soon. So that's the stuff that's sort of hard, you know, to figure out. Is this from a big? Um, is this
1: from a big six publisher, like a?
2: It, no, but it's a big academic press. Okay. I, mean, I mean, I think he published another writer. That I'm a fan of, and then that writer is like, "Well, Jesus, dude, if you're going to publish me, you should hook up with this other." I mean, he suggested it, which was great. Um, This other writer, who's a fan of mine, who's bigger, you know, and that's something too that's been fascinating. You know, there are bigger writers, bigger in my mind for sure, who I'm friendly with, who are like, "You should be bigger. You could be bigger, but you know, it hasn't happened yet. It might. I wouldn't be very upset if it didn't." But I would be disingenuous if I told you I wouldn't be totally thrilled about it, you know?
1: Yeah, no, I I just, it's like the, it's one of the central questions for me is like, I just wonder. I mean, I guess it does exist. There are books of like literary fiction that get published and find uh, a lot of readers, but it's just like a few. And I, it's, I don't know. It's the, it's the age old mystery. It's, it's endlessly fascinating. It
2: really is. I don't think there's a real logarithm. It'd be great if someone said, do X and do Y but then make sure you do it during this time period in front of these people and you're set, but you know, you know, it doesn't work like that. Yeah. I mean, I don't think, I don't think there's some things you can figure out. I mean, I think you can figure out, I heard you talk about this, I think with Ben Lurie the other day. I mean, I think you could write a script and figure out what makes something popular. That to me is a little different than a book, right? So if someone is interested, I do think there's ways to write more popular scripts. You know, I write screenplays with a friend of mine and the times we get stuck, it's always the same problem. Like whenever a producer comes back to us, and this has only been over the last year or so, they always say the same thing. So I know there's something very consciously we're doing wrong, which I find hilarious because we can't seem to get ourselves to do it right.
1: Well, what do they say? What do they all say?
2: So we get the same thing with, like, the last three scripts we've done. You know, it's too much of a mix of humor and darkness. You've got to be more humorous or more dark. And then they say, but if you go more dark, people will love your script, but they won't buy it. Right. That's... And so we get that, We get stuck on the same thing. They always like the writing. They like the story, they like the characters, but it's not popular enough, and we are so completely unknown that nobody would let us go darker, and we haven't figured out how to go funnier without losing that. So we get sort of stuck on the, if you guys are better established, these would be pretty good scripts we could fix, but since you guys are nobody, nobody's going to take any time. Well, and good. we can't quite untangle
1: that. Well, see, but that's the thing. And I start to – because I've done that, and then I just I – just, I guess I just get frustrated with trying to shoehorn myself into this, like, popular sensibility. Like, I feel like it should, it should happen naturally or not at all. I mean, like, I'm just not predisposed. Uh, like, even uh, to, you know, reference what I was talking about with Ben uh, on this show, like, I was talking about this Santa Claus script which was just like a it was, a, it was a farce, you know, like, and I'm, I'm, I wrote a draft of it and I showed it to my agent and, and she was like, what the fuck is this? Like, this is the darkest, weirdest thing. Like, I had Santa Claus like playing piano and singing Radiohead songs and like all this stuff that I thought was like really sort of like funny and weird or whatever. Um, but it had absolutely nothing to do with like, you know, popular sensibility, which I get. Um, But I just, I, I couldn't force it out of myself. I had to write what I write. And, you know, when I, when I think about books, and I think about what I'm working on now, like, I certainly hope, you know, there's always like the, the hope that there would be a wider audience that could relate. But there's also a part of me, if I'm being honest, that wonders if just like as a human being, you know, in terms of how I perceive the world and how I respond to it, or whatever, if I just am some, you know, a little bit at odds, uh, or a little bit, you know, out in left field. You know what I'm saying? Like compared to most people, and they're absolutely Going to be people that like it. There are going to be people that really like it and that really respond. Who are you know working on a similar wavelength? But um, you know, maybe it's the case where there's only like two hundred thousand people. You know what I'm saying? Like I don't know. I, I just wonder. Like who are my people out there? Like how many of them All are?
2: Right. There? <laughs> well, and it's funny because you know I would not probably unless it seemed very minor or consistent. I don't think I would change something in a book because someone said this will definitely make it more popular or I will definitely represent you. So I do have that sort of rigidity, which is probably too much. On the other hand, if someone said that about a script, I would do it in a second because to me, script writing, which is fun, I enjoy it, I enjoy writing with my partner – That, to me, is a means to doing other things, right? So that's a means to be able to write books and not have to work, you know, endless hours a week on a regular job. That's a means to having an excuse to go to L.A. and maybe spend a month on the beach waiting. You know, so script writing, I would completely say, if someone said, I guarantee you if you do the following four things, it'll be more popular, we'll buy it. I would say, fine, I'll sell myself out for that. I don't think I do that with a novel, so that may be part of my holdback. And the other thing, and I don't know if you thought about this, my dad was a painter, and in some ways he was wildly successful, but, you know, he was also wildly frustrated about not being as successful as he wanted, um, which I can appreciate, and I don't think I totally appreciated it when I was a kid. What Um, what kind
1: of painter was he? Should I know? He
2: was like a fine, you know, some people know him. I mean, some people think, this is so bad, some people think he's one of the great Jewish artists of like the, you know, of the, Second half of the, I mean, one artist I described as one of the best, you know, greatest Jewish artists of the second half of the century, which seems like a lot, but someone actually said it. So, you know, but he never broke out. I mean, he never broke out of upstate New York, not really. And so nobody's, I don't think anyone's really heard of him. He's terrific. He did a lot of, you know, he worked in oils and he was a fine artist and the paintings are beautiful. I mean, I'm looking at two of them right now. And, you know, but he never did anything that was quite popular and he never sort of defined. He never defined his audience. And his big thing to me always was, you need to define an audience if you're ever going to start writing. So I didn't start, you know, I talked about it for years. I didn't start for years. He'd always say, you've got to have an audience, you've got to have an audience. Of course, I've done the complete opposite you know, I've never tried to figure out the audience and I've never tried to go from book to book saying, This is what people liked in the last book. I mean, you know. And so you, that how was do, how, do, knew, how do
1: you how do you define an audience? I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like that that just seems like so abstract to me. You know, like other than I mean, I guess you could sit down and write down like what you think possibly uh is like the, the demographic information, you know, like you could guess at it or try to yeah. track try to track it via like blog analytics or something, but, that you know, it's... It, it's.
2: Well, you know, for example, I don't know this is exactly what you're pushing at, but this has been in my mind for the last year or so. I even wrote about this. You know, there's a local mystery writer in Chicago, Marcus Sakey, who's very popular and very good. So he's got the weird mix of being critically acclaimed and selling tons of books. So I don't remember his background. Maybe it was advertising, but he decided he wanted to be a novelist, which I think is awesome. you are going to decide that. Of course, I decided it, but, you know, he decided that, and then he looked around, he said to himself, what sells... And then he said, well, mystery, sell. I'm going to be a mystery writer. So he did, in a way, say, here's an audience that buys books that are excited about, you know, things that come out. And if I can do a good job, I'll be successful. And he's a raging success. So in that way, he defined something. You know,
1: I remember there was a writer I
2: read an interview with years ago who was dying to write for The Simpsons. So he watched every episode for like 10 years, and he mapped out what he thought was the formula for how they did every episode. And then he spent weeks or months writing like the perfect spec script you know so in that way he defined the audience in that case the audience was the producers but he spent a lot of time sort of determining what they would like hence what their audience would like so i'm saying i haven't done anything like that yeah that's it why worked. he was being interviewed right yeah, it's a good work. that's so, the best part
1: so wait he he, he wrote that he, he studied it like comprehensive study of like the entire back catalog of simpsons episodes which is a lot because it's been on the air forever yeah. And then he he created some sort of, like, algorithm or formula that he felt was, you know, the perfect Simpsons episode, wrote the spec, and then sent it to their producers.
2: Yes and yes. And I'm assuming, you know, you live in L.A. Nothing's quite that simple. But, yeah, basically, that's exactly what he did. And I thought, God, that's awesome. And I was so jealous of that. I thought that's the greatest thing. It really felt like, in the moment, the greatest thing I had ever heard.
1: Wait now, who's, so who is this that. guy? Do I know this guy? Which
2: I don't remember. I don't know because you know, I read it like ten years ago. I didn't think I was a writer yet. Oh okay. Um, but, but I was always reading about writers. Yeah. Oh, Sorry, oh, right. I'm not yeah.
1: helping you with the punchline. No, no, no. You were talking because I was the, the reason I ask is that you're, so you're telling an anecdote about somebody you read about, not somebody you know, or am I? Oh yeah, someone I read about. Yeah. Oh, no, it's Stephen yeah. Gagin. It's the guy who wrote Traffic. That's the same dude. I think so because that was his oh, story. That's all- That was his story. That's even more awesome. Like he just wrote a Simpsons spec script and like mailed it in, like into the slush pile. Like didn't even like I don't think an agent even submitted it. But he just wrote them a letter and uh, sent in his script, and they read it, and they were like, "This is great." And that was it.
2: Oh, so maybe that's the guy because whoever was basically locked themselves in their rinky-dink little LA apartment for weeks or months, just watching episode after episode.
1: Yeah no okay so yeah that I think that might be the guy and like but that's like a one in a million I mean it had, the script had to oh be good, I know but it's just like that's an insane story you know the odds of that are like infinitesimal. But
2: you know what's great about that? It seems to me as a writer or any kind of artist, you always want to try to figure out the one in a million. Like to me, though if you said to me, Ben, do you think you could write one of those one in a million books? I'd say that seems impossible, of course. But do I think I can? Yeah, why not? So I mean, I honestly believe that's possible for me. For you, you know, for a lot of people who have the gift in the first place or have the understanding, but the likelihood of it's very slim. But, you know, I always say this. I was out with a friend the other night. He's like, I don't want to write a great book. I want to write really good books. I mean, I was drinking a lot of this particular night, but I said, don't settle for writing a good book. I mean, if you end up with a good book, that's kind of a published novelist. I said, don't do that. You should be trying to write the greatest novel every time, every single time. So we got a little argument about that, but that was very much my dad that night. I thought, why say you're happy to write good books? That's bullshit.
1: Right, I think so too. That drove really me crazy. No, I'm right on that same page cause like, I and and frankly, like, I've really come to like a, a clarity with it, like, recently, where. Uh, you know, not that I wasn't trying to be great or whatever in you know before, but just like I, I think I've heightened my focus on that. Like, there's just really no, there's no point to sitting down to do anything, whether it's writing or, or whatever. You know, doing a podcast if you're not like going to try to make it as absolutely great as it can be and like really invest yourself in every little detail. And if you do I- less, if you do less than that, it, you know, it's just there's a pointlessness that is suddenly now. Like a hundred percent clear to me that in in ways that it maybe wasn't before.
2: Yeah, I think too. You know, some people get this younger, some people get it older. You know, sometimes I don't even think it's about the detail, but it's about the belief that you can be awesome. You know, I love listening, particularly to musicians. You know, they'll always say, "Why can't I? Why couldn't I start a band for my garage and fucking upstate wherever?" You know, like they never, it never occurred to them that they're not going to be huge. At some point, maybe some people get a lot. of people get batted down, but. They're like, why couldn't I do that? Or why couldn't I make an, a, mo- a movie in my backyard? And so I think that's the right attitude. I never had that for the last four or five years, which is, I can do something great. Why can't I do something great at my kitchen table looking across the parking lot behind our building? You know, that's possible. Yeah. It seems possible. People do it. You know. You know. They do all the time. I love, and I love that. They do that all the time. Look at some of these writers who've blown up in the last couple of years. I mean, they're all really talented, too. But, you know. Blake and Shane Jones and Amelia Gray and all these people getting, you know, big publishing house opportunities. I mean, I've got to believe on some level, they all thought, I can do something great. Why can't I do something great? You know, I don't think people say I'm going to do something okay. I don't think great. I don't think people have a lot of success ever feel that way.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, I wonder. It's a good question. Like, you wonder how many people sit down thinking, like, I, I feel like sometimes I talk to people and they have that kind of like uh, understanding of their own ambition and they're happy to like say it out loud, and then sometimes I feel like I'll talk to someone who's written a really uh, popular book or who's done really well, who just really had something that they wanted to say. Do you know what I'm saying? Like they, it's kind of two sides of the same coin, but it's not expressed quite the same, you know?
2: Well, you know what's beautiful, and this is what I love about the grandiosity of artists or politicians, which is I felt like I had something to say, so I said it because I assumed you'd want to hear it. Yeah. To yeah. me, that's right. Two sides are the same. question. Like I just assumed you'd like that. And then you have to think to yourself, you really thought I'd like that? Because, of course, you have to. That was my dad's thing all the time. He's like, these are great paintings. Doesn't Why wouldn't everybody think they're great? And why don't they?
1: Right. Yeah. No. I mean, yeah. And I guess that's part of me. And I'm thinking about myself. And I'm like, you know, so so many times when I'm working, I'm like, I, I feel like I doubt I doubt myself a lot. I'm like, God does anyone really want to read about this shit? You know. But then other times like I, I'm sitting there laughing at what I've just written and, you know, enjoying it and then I guess imagining that other people would too. But um, you kinda have to have that. I mean what if you don't have oh, yeah. there's no way that you could bring yourself to sit down every day. I mean, you know, it's like it's you have to delude yourself in that manner.
2: <laughs> oh, I think so. I and mean, then not even just delude yourself. Convince yourself to that isn't a real thought to have, you know, I mean, I rarely have young writers say to me, what's your advice? And I don't know, you know, never having gone to an MFA program and not really ever taken a writing class, like I don't know real tips, but I always say to people, you know, every time you write, you should assume you're going to write something awesome that people do want to read. And then you should write it, but you should write regardless. But why not? Every time you sit down, you should think this is going to be something great, even if you cut it. You're talking to Joshua Moore, who I have sort of an email relationship with, and he's like, I write 1,200 words to get 300, which seems insane to me, but I thought, I bet you every word, though, he's thinking, this word's great, this sentence is great, and then he kills it. I mean, that's a pretty, to me, that's a really awesome thing about being a writer is which is, I really believe this, oh, and by the way, now I'm going to kill it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, and just, and just, and the other thing that I always say, you know, that... That uh, is clear, like every time I sit down, it's just like how much work it is. So, anybody who gets books done, uh, you know, and, and and they're of a certain quality, I guess, but anybody who just goes through the process uh, and you talk about 1,200 words for 300 good words, you know, I think that that's actually probably somewhat common. Um, especially, it's hard to calculate too in, com- in the computer age because you can delete, but you know, you just, it takes so much. So, there's just kind of an inherent respect I have for anybody who goes through all that to try to get the words in the right order
2: oh yeah it's wonderful i think it's great i I love writers you know i was thinking about this and i'd be talking to you i mean when i got to chicago which is now 16 years ago i wasn't a writer you know but i was obsessed with trying to start writing and one of the early things i decided to do because i hadn't been able to figure this out for whatever reason in new york and san francisco was sort of meet writers i also didn't know any writers at all And I'd never even really been to a book reading. And I would say the first three or four years I was here, you know, I just went to every book reading I could possibly go to. And I do think on some level, which is sort of, I don't know what the right word is, you know, I really think I was trying to steal something from those writers. I don't know what it was, but I was trying to steal their energy or their excitement. And there were certain writers I saw, and I thought, fuck, I have got to be like them someday. Like, I just got like knocked on my ass, and I thought, Whatever it takes to be like that, I'm going to be like that.
1: Who was who? Is, you who can you remember somebody specifically
0: that really... Oh,
2: yeah. No, I like, do. this is the beautiful part about being so compulsive about this stuff. You know, there's a local writer here, Don DeGrazia, who wrote a book, American Skin, which is phenomenal. And he teaches at Columbia College. And I saw him. I don't even remember why I picked him out, except that he was reading like two blocks away. And I, when I saw him read... His whole demeanor was really wonderful, but the book hit me in such a weird way. It was the first time I heard another author, and I hope this sounds like a compliment. Where I thought, I have to write a book like that. Like he's the one who made me want to really sit down and knock out the first novel. So Don de Joe Mino, who's now very pop, you know, more popular. Uh, he's a wonderful guy. I even met him at parties before he really blew up. He was always very interesting and supportive. Um, Elizabeth Crane, you know another great, great writer who, of course, I've been milking a long time, crush on, but I think she knows about it. Um, you know, those, those are all Chicago writers I was really obsessed with. There's a guy the guy who wrote the novel Mysterious Skin, Scott Payne, who I don't think has been writing as much the last couple of years. You know, he was doing a reading. I just walked into a bookstore. I mean, I always would walk into bookstores and just sort of like stroke the books. You know, but he was reading at a bookstore I happened to walk into, and I was completely spellbound. So, those are some of the early ones. David Sedaris, you know, a lot of people say that. I saw him before he was super popular, and I just thought, Jesus, I got to be, I got to feel like that, look like that. You know, I mean, those are people I really latched onto. Linda Barry, she's a, you know, a cartoonist, but she also wrote the book, um, Crummy. Which is one of my favorite novels. When I heard her read from that novel, I just thought, "Holy fuck! I want that feeling." Whatever she's doing looks really awesome. I want to be part of that. So I was definitely trying to steal their whatever, their mojo for years before I started.
1: Well, cool, man. Well, Ben, it's been uh, it's been so fun talking with you, and uh, I kind of wish we had more time because we I feel like we just scratched the surface. But uh, congratulations!
2: I know I just looked up at the clock and
1: I thought, amazing. Yeah, it goes fast. So, congratulations uh, on all that you do and all your books, and uh, you know, maybe we'll have you on again down the line when you have uh, some new stuff come out.
2: Okay, oh, I would love that. I want to just say I really, really appreciate this opportunity, but also, you know, TND in general has been very generous as a unit you know you guys reviewing my books and giving me chances to submit fiction and so i want to say i think you're doing a real proper for indie writers And you definitely definitely hooked me up repeatedly over the last couple of years so this is a public chance to say how much i really appreciate that and how much street credit gives me so i
1: want to thank you oh man no it's my pleasure thank you so much Okay then, there you go folks, that's the program, that's the show, that's Ben Tanzer. Go get My Father's House, it's available now from Main Street Rag, you can check uh, that out at MainStreetRag.com. Ben has a website of his own, it's it's BenTanzer.blogspot.com, uh, he has a Twitter feed, at Ben Tanzer, and Tanzer is spelled T-A-N-Z-E-R, and he has a Facebook presence as well. This show has a website, it's OtherPeoplePod.com, it has a Twitter feed, at OtherPeoplePod, go follow it. I have a Twitter feed at Brad Listy. The show has a Facebook presence. And if you want to email me, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Go check out killrockstars.com. And be sure to check out The Nervous Breakdown, too. That's my online culture magazine and literary community. You can find it on the web at thenervousbreakdown.com. And you can follow it on the Twitter at TNB Tweets. So before I go, uh, I should add, with regard to my Prices Right experience... Uh, that I was talking about at the top of the show, uh, I should add that the wheel was the most exciting part you know, or I guess you know, in addition to Rod Roddy saying, "Come on down and and seeing Bob come out you know that was exciting, but uh, as far as the show itself was concerned, it was the wheel uh you know when the contestants spin the wheel to determine who will compete for the showcase uh, or in the showcase showdown that was uh, for me an emotional high, and it was also uh, visually stimulating. So, speaking of visually stimulating, uh, have you looked at a tree recently? And I don't—I do not mean to sound absurd, uh, but lately I've decided that trees are amazing to me, anyway. Just, just, and, and particularly certain trees. But I do think it's a, you know advisable uh, on a daily basis to try to notice trees and to maybe even spend some time staring at your favorite tree, or, or better yet, climb—you know—climbing your favorite tree might be a good idea. Go sit in a tree. What am I talking about? Uh, Yeah, I don't even know where that came from. Anyway, uh, it's almost dinner time here. Perhaps I'm uh, hallucinating because I'm so hungry. And uh, I I also need to go hang out with my daughter. So I'm going to sign off. Thank you, as always, for listening to the program. I really appreciate it. Thank you for going to iTunes and rating and reviewing the show. That really does help. So if you haven't done that yet, please go over to iTunes right now. And take a couple of seconds, just a minute of your life, and rate and review the show. Uh, If you do that, I will be enormously grateful. Okay? Okay. Thank you. I'm done. And uh, remember, help control the pet population. Please have your, your pet spayed or neutered. Thank you. For me, stop my speed to diz. in your